Well, good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with you today as we really get into the text of Timothy with this greeting from the Apostle Paul, as Larry just read, 1 Timothy 1, 1 and 2. These verses, which are rightly referred to as Paul's greeting, are verses that are easy to look past. Because, let's face it, we tend to not put a lot of weight into words of greeting, not just in Scripture, but in everyday uh, interactions with people. We all understand that our typical words of greeting are, for the most part, relatively pointless. Right? I mean, you've experienced this already this morning, I assume, unless you are just particularly connected to everyone you've seen at church. As you arrive to the chapel today, you no doubt were greeted with, hey, good morning, how are you? And just without thinking, you probably said, great, how are you? And you continue to move forward, not really looking or listening for the response. You did this not because you're an uncaring, you know, desperate sinner. You did this because this is how communication works. We understand that words of greeting generally are just weightless, meaningless acknowledgement of another person's existence. And it's just part of friendly communication. It's what we do, but we generally tend to not really put any more thought into it than that. We all, however, at times, come into those experiences when we realize just how inadequate, and because of that, how awkward that thoughtlessness can be when we interact with someone who isn't having a very good morning. And you can think of extreme versions of that as you come to church. Perhaps the first person that greets you is a person that you know for a fact is going through a terribly difficult season in their life. Maybe they've lost a loved one, they've lost their job, their marriage is struggling, and in that moment, you start to say, hey, good morning, how are you? But in your mind, you're thinking, oh no, what have I done this isn't going to go well at all because you know that things aren't going well. But you also know that the nature of greeting is one that is relatively quick and meaningless. And in that moment, you realize just how inadequate our typical words of greeting tend to be. They're good when the moment is meaningless. They are worthless when the moment is far more difficult. And in those difficult moments, what do you say? How do you greet someone? Many of us just put our eyes down and walk by the person hoping that they don't greet us. But when confronted, when forced to interact with people that are struggling, what what can you possibly say in those moments? What's an appropriate question to ask? Because as we come to a letter like 1 Timothy, and particularly in these opening verses, we come to a moment where Paul himself is greeting Timothy. And as was oftentimes the case in Paul's day, these opening greetings were generally meaningless. They were intended simply to convey who the author is, who they're writing to, and literally just offer a word of greetings. Hello. Which then just served as a transition into the meat of the letter, the purpose of the communication. But as we'll see today in these opening words, Paul is doing something so much more than that. And he does something so much more than that because Paul understands the weight of this moment. He understands Timothy doesn't just need some meaningless, thoughtless greeting. He needs something to to keep him going. And so in these opening verses, as we'll see today, Paul does something masterfully. He offers a, a greeting that is so much more than that. For in these two verses, he offers a word that speaks to authority, He offers a word that speaks of genuine confidence in Timothy. And ultimately, perhaps most importantly, he offers a word that's intended to to bring real encouragement. 
As he does so then, in these few words, Paul is already setting up where this letter is headed and addressing much issues that need to be addressed in him these days. And as I hope we see today, he begins addressing issues that are equally important and equally relevant to our own position. And so my prayer this morning is that as we explore this greeting, we walk away with a proper appreciation of just how weighty these opening words are. We might then be reminded of why these words are still essential for us as believers in 2023. With that being said, let me open our time in prayer, and we'll begin exploring these words of authority, confidence, and encouragement. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning. We thank you, God, for the opportunity to get into the text of 1 Timothy, a letter written so long ago, yet a letter that remains so incredibly important for us to appreciate today. God, I do not know the situation of everyone here this morning. But I'm confident that many come here this morning deeply discouraged, struggling. Struggling in their jobs, struggling in their marriages, struggling just at home. And in their struggle, many are struggling to see your goodness, your kindness, your sovereign hand. For those individuals, God, I pray that in these words of greeting, they they might receive the comfort they need this morning. For the rest of us, God, as as we sit here this morning, Lord, even as things might be going well for us, I pray that in these words we might be reminded of why things are going well. We might be reminded of the fact that our confidence is not found in our own particular context, what our bank account looks like, how we are viewed by others, but our confidence, our peace, our everything is always upon the foundation of your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, God, might you remove all distractions from us this morning, God, Might you cause us to be focused entirely upon you, upon the word that you have inspired, God. For unbelievers who are here this morning, as always, I pray for their salvation. I pray they might be awakened to their need of you. And I pray that you bring them to a saving faith in you today. God, we love you. Jesus, we praise you and we thank you for your sacrifice. Might all this time be spent this morning to your praise. In your name, amen. As our text opens up, It opens up with these words in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. The first word that Paul opens up with in this very important letter is a word of absolute authority. And you see that in his reference to this title, Apostle of Christ Jesus. Paul does not simply identify him as a friend of Timothy, a co-worker of Timothy. Paul is the apostle. Christ Jesus. This title was significant, for it was only shared by a select few in that early church. And as Paul refers to his authority, he refers to something that he was not born with. This is not like a a royal family that Paul was born into. This is something that was handed to Paul at the point of his conversion. That conversion is recorded for us back in Acts chapter 9. We don't have time to read through the entirety of that conversion account, but it is important to recall, for as many of you already know, Paul was not born Paul, but Saul. And as Saul, prior to his conversion, Saul was a great persecutor of the church. He despised Christ, and as such, despised every Christian, and wanted nothing more than to bring an end to this pesky new religion that was such an offense to his Jewish heritage. So Saul, as many of you already know, spent his days toiling away to try to ensure that as many Christians as possible be thrown into prison, that their lives would be brought to an untimely end, or in his case, a timely end, and they could then stamp out this threat. 
It was in the process of trying to maintain that persecution streak in chapter 9 that Paul is confronted, not just by a believer, but as many of you already know, he is confronted by Jesus Christ himself. And in this miraculously powerful story in Acts chapter 9, you see this immediate conversion where Saul moves from great persecutor of the church to humbled, blind disciple who for the first time has his spiritual eyes opened. He sees Jesus Christ for who he is. He is called to repentance. And as he is called to repentance, he not simply becomes a follower of Jesus, but he is given this unique role, an apostle. Now, Paul's apostleship is is remarkably unique, for it's slightly different from the other apostles. The rest of the apostles shared the, the common bond of having been disciples of Jesus during his earthly ministry. Those apostles then would have viewed or been witness to Jesus' physical resurrection, and it was a part of that shared experience that allowed them to serve that role of apostle. Yet while Paul did not share those same things, that is, he was not an earthly disciple of Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry, nor did he view Christ immediately following the resurrection, he's given the title nonetheless, this title of apostle, specifically ministering to Gentile people, calling those Gentiles, those outside of the Jewish religion, to confession, to profession in Jesus Christ. As an apostle, Paul then was understood to be a unique and official representative of Jesus. And like the rest of the apostles, Paul carried with him an authority that was not shared by believers worldwide. It it was held only by the select few who saw Jesus Christ and who were given this charge by, as Paul himself references, by command of Jesus Christ. And as a result of that command, as a result of this title, Paul was able to do things that your average believer just could not do. That is to say, he was, he was able to speak into situations that most believers would not be able to speak into. He was able to, as we see throughout the New Testament, write letters of great authority, of great weight to, to churches spread throughout the Roman Empire. And if you were in one of those churches, when you receive a letter from the Apostle Paul, well, you understand, you have to listen to this. This isn't just some random guy off the streets coming in saying, hey, I'm worried about what I've seen. This is an apostle of Christ Jesus. And as such, this is a person who's been given unique authority and a unique role by God himself. In fact, to add to this understanding, to make sure that his audience understood just how significant this authority is, Paul makes reference to that, that one who gave him his commission. There in verse 1 again, he says he's an apostle of Christ Jesus according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus who is our hope. With each choice of words here, Paul is adding to the weight of his authority. Paul could have simply said he's an apostle of Jesus Christ according to Christ. But Paul chooses to add God the Father into the mix. He chooses to bring in this understanding of of the Christology central to Christianity, the role of the Son along with the role of the Father. And as he does so, he references God as our Savior, Christ Jesus, who is our hope. Paul does something here that he does not frequently do in his letters. For oftentimes when he 
refers to his apostleship. He simply speaks of Christ Jesus. But here he adds God the Father in a way that is very similar to Galatians. Galatians, which as many of you know, was a letter also written to a church in great trouble. Galatians, which as some of you already know, was, was a church that was messing around with heresy and considering what these outside teachers were doing. And so just as Paul wrote to the Galatians, this word of authority to remind them who is talking here, so too does he write to the church in Ephesus. In essence, in this opening word, immediately he's reminding them of who's in charge here. This was vitally important for the Ephesian believers. For, for these Ephesian believers, and Timothy who was there to help them, were facing a cultural crisis of authority where, where they didn't know who to follow. For there were many false teachers who had come from within their own body. People who were commanding to be listened to, people who were presenting themselves as elders, as shepherds, yet people who were just communicating utter confusion. This, while disappointing to Paul, was no doubt a surprise to him. For if you recall... A passage that Pastor Josh referenced last week in Acts chapter 20. This confusion is something that Paul had warned this church about years before. Back in Acts chapter 20, when Paul is about to leave the city of Ephesus after serving there for a number of years, Paul offers this warning. In Acts chapter 20, beginning in verse 25, there Paul says, And now, behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom will no longer see my face. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink back from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in, will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will rise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one of you with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. And we'll stop there. Before Paul left the church at Ephesus, he warned them about these wolves that would come about. And... And in describing those wolves, the primary offense they are doing is, is they're bringing in false teaching. They are, it seems, going to present themselves, again, as authoritative figures who understand the secret truths of God. And as a result of their teaching, they would try to pull lamb, uh, lambs away. They would try to pull sheep away from the flock. Paul knew this was a threat, and by the time we get to 1 Timothy, that threat had come to fruition. Unless the church at Ephesus was a church in confusion a church without singular authority, a church that could be compared to the chaos of a playground scene in which every, kids are, every kid is, is in the pecking order trying to figure out who gets to decide which game they're going to play and what rules they will follow. Paul, in this case, is the teacher who's finally coming out to the playground and saying, what are you guys doing? Calm down. In response to the childlike confusion, Paul is saying, I don't care what they say. I am an apostle. Listen to me, follow what I said, and things will be set back right. This authority, then, was essential. Essential for Timothy to remember, but also essential for, for the people in Ephesus to remember. For it seems they'd forgotten where their truth came from. 
And when they forget that source, confusion is inevitable. And in God's plan, we, of course, do not have apostles today. That was an office unique to that early church. But we still experience the same level of confusion. For we live in a culture in which there are countless people presenting themselves as theologians presenting themselves as as brilliant teachers and preachers. And in this day and age in which we have the internet giving us countless false teachers, it is inevitable that many Christians can become confused. And many people can say, oh, did you watch this clip? Oh, did you hear this sermon? Did you read that article? And people can begin being pulled every which way, trying to figure out, okay, what, what is the truth here? Now, as believers, again, we do not have apostles, but we still have one sure foundation, We still have the word. And so we must still be careful to follow the example of Paul and amidst that confusion, in essence, be willing to say, I don't care what so-and-so says. I don't care what, what the blog article that you're referencing is arguing. I care what the word reveals. The foundation of the apostles was, was used to build up. That is our authority. That is, has to be what we constantly go back to, to cite, to build our practice off of. There will never be a time in which confusion will be removed until we get to eternity in heaven. And so, like Timothy, like the church in Ephesus, we in Cape Girardeau at Cape Bible Chapel must constantly remember that. This is our authority. This is the standard. And from the beginning, the Apostle Paul sets that standard up and reminds us, here is why you have to listen. Here is why the letter he is about to write means something, both then and still means something today. Because it's not written by some random guy in the streets. It is penned by the Apostle Paul, who was an apostle by the command of the one who saves us, our hope of glory, our God, our creator, our judge. And so when Paul speaks, we listen. It was an important word for the church at Ephesus to understand. But of course, even upon hearing this word of authority, you can imagine some people thinking, well, that's, that's all well and good, Paul. But you're not here. For Paul, again, is, is elsewhere as he writes this letter. This is why he's writing the letter. He hopes to see them soon. But he's in an entirely different city. And so if you've ever been in the midst of confusion, you know how perhaps unhelpful some distant advice can seem. And so while his word of authority is nice and important, one must still perhaps ask, okay, Apostle Paul, how do you expect to handle this issue when you're hundreds of miles away from us? Who do you think you are, Paul? And to that end, having identified himself, Paul very helpfully moves into verse 2 and identifies his audience. And it's in identifying his audience that Paul brings not just a word of authority, but a word of absolute confidence. Pick it back up with me in 1 Timothy chapter 1. Or 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 2. Paul writes, To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now again, if If we're being lazy in our study of the Bible, it would be easy to read this half of a verse and skip ahead to the meatier parts of this letter. But we must appreciate, we must slow down and and see the significance of this figure. 
and why Paul refers to Timothy the way he does. To be fair to Timothy, he was a man that that carried with him a significant reputation. We do not have the same story of his own miraculous conversion. In fact, we have no reason to believe there was some, you know, miraculous vision he was given. But we are told very clearly that, that Timothy was an obedient follower of Christ. While his story may not be quite as exciting as, as Paul's to some of us, his testimony actually strikes much closer to home, I would guess, for the overwhelming majority of us in here. For you see a glimpse of his testimony if you just turn the page over to 2 Timothy chapter 1. For in 2 Timothy chapter 1, you read these words that, that speak of Timothy's upbringing. There again, Paul says, I am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I'm sure that it is in you as well. Again, not quite as exciting as Paul. Oh, but this one phrase is so deeply encouraging to me as a believer. For Timothy was not given the gospel in the form of some miraculous roadside vision. He was given the gospel by his mom and grandmom who shared the faith with him and who then raised him up in the faith. And while we read nothing else of these two women in scripture, we have enough here to be reminded of, of the gracious, miraculous power of God. And the fact that he can save people as he does Saul with miraculous visions, but he can also save people as he has no doubt saved the vast majority of believers in here through much more common means. Through a faithful mom, a faithful dad, a faithful grandparent, faithful men and women working back in the children's wing serving in VBS. While it might not be as exciting to us, as I hope we all understand, the conversion of someone like Timothy is just as miraculous as the conversion of Saul. For in both cases, it's a picture of someone being taken from death to life, from darkness to light. And so Timothy was was on equal footing with Paul in that story. He was a believer. And not just any believer. Timothy was was a faithful follower of Christ. And in the ministry of Paul, Timothy was a faithful co-laborer of Paul's. As you read throughout all of Paul's epistles, you come across these somewhat random but, but ongoing references to Timothy. And as you pile all these references together, you can get a pretty clear picture that, that Paul placed quite a lot of responsibility on Timothy's shoulders. For you read in his letters of how how. Timothy didn't just travel alongside Paul. You can see that in Acts. But you read elsewhere and and see that that Paul trusted Timothy enough to send him ahead to places like Philippi, to strong, healthy churches that that needed work. You see, Paul was confident enough in Timothy to send him ahead to far more difficult places like Corinth, a city that struggled mightily in the faith, and yet a city that Paul knew would be served well by Timothy. And so while Paul was serving in Ephesus. Here at Corinth had a need, and so, Timothy, you're the guy. Have at it. You seem to do the same type of work in Thessalonica. Over and over again, Paul treats Timothy in a manner that demonstrates Timothy's true faithfulness, true benefit to the ongoing ministry that Paul sought to fill as an apostle. If you want to get a clear picture, perhaps, a more obvious example of of what Paul thought of Timothy— Turn with me, if you will, over to Philippians chapter 2. 
Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, you, you find these, these moving words that Paul shares regarding Timothy and just how valuable he thought he was. Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, we read, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know of his proven worth, that he served with me, and the furtherance of the gospel like a child serving his father. Can you imagine being given this type of compliment from the Apostle Paul? Paul, who ministered amongst the thousands, who served in great cities like Corinth, massive cities like Ephesus, no doubt knew people with great talent, great skill, great potential. But time and time again, Paul comes back to Timothy as a shining star student. Timothy, who doesn't just know doctrine, although he does, but just as importantly as we see in Philippians, Timothy, who loved people, who loved the church at Philippi, who was a faithful servant, able to be compared to as this child serving his father. That's Timothy. A shining example of faithfulness, of compassion, of love, of grace, and of genuine skill, to be fair. For it's clear he could teach. It's clear he had leadership abilities. It's clear from our own vantage point that Timothy was right to be trusted by Paul. And yet, despite all those great things, Timothy has one glaring weakness in the eyes of the Ephesians, doesn't he? For as mature as Timothy might be, as well-spoken as Timothy might be, as great of a reference as Paul might be to Timothy, what is Timothy not? He's not an apostle. Not only that, he's not an Ephesian. He's an outsider. The nerve of that guy coming in here, telling us how to run our place. You don't have to be from Ephesus to appreciate how painful and how difficult it might be to accept someone like Timothy. Sure, you can accept Paul because he's an apostle, but this kid, what's he got? Again, to use a reference or comparison to childhood days, you think of the difference between how a class views their teacher versus how a class views their substitute. And I don't mean to speak poorly of any of you who do the gracious, godly work of substitute teaching. God bless you. But we all understand the difference as a kid, right? As a kid in elementary school, junior high, high school, it doesn't matter. You walk in and you see that substitute at the desk, and what do you think? Easy day. Let's get the video playing. Let's lay back, and let's just take a break. That is, of course, an entirely unfair response, for the substitute is there to do a job. But the second the substitute corrects ill behavior in the class, what do you think? Well, how dare they do that? This substitute is too strict. I can't believe this substitute won't let me do whatever it is I want to do today. The substitute could be enforcing everything the teacher asked them to do, and yet they will be viewed as lesser than because they don't have the title. They don't have the personal knowledge of you. They don't have the authority that the teacher has. And so the substitute is left with a very difficult challenge of trying to instill order in chaos, trying to instill order in an environment that has no desire to follow them. The situation is not entirely different for Timothy. 
For here he is, an outsider, bringing in no clear command of Christ, bringing in no authority that's recognized by the church worldwide, and not even serving as an elder. They already have elders. They already have their pastor set up in Ephesus. Timothy is entirely an outsider. And so it would be easy for people to view Timothy as less than, as ineffective, as unimportant. And yet while he does not have the title that they desired, he does not come in title-less, does he? For how does Paul refer to this non-apostle Timothy? Read again, verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Why does Paul say that? Why would Paul describe Timothy in such strange language? What's he communicating here? Well, I think that he's communicating at least two points when he uses this idea of, of true child in the faith. The first, and perhaps the most obvious, is his love for Timothy. As we've already seen, Paul loves Timothy, and in 2 Timothy, he refers to him as his beloved child. Throughout his letters, he speaks of how there's no one else like Timothy. Paul loves him. And that love is no doubt being communicated here in 1 Timothy. But secondly, and I think more practically, when Paul calls Timothy his true child, he speaks of Timothy's legitimacy. For it's the same language you would use to describe your own legitimate child. And so while Timothy is not an apostle, well, he's the legitimate child of an apostle, meaning he's that apostle's official representative in Ephesus. Meaning, hey, Ephesians, Timothy's the closest thing you're going to get to an apostle. And if you would listen to me, you better listen to Timothy, because he's my son. And so as he says this, he not only is speaking of his love in Timothy, but, but again, it's this word of confidence. Confidence knowing Timothy can do this job. Confidence knowing that regardless of all the weaknesses Timothy might have, regardless of how difficult of a position he's been put in, in a, a church that's marked by or characterized by wolves tearing the sheep apart, yeah, Timothy's got this. He can do this. And the Ephesians need to understand, Timothy can do this. And the reason why he can do it, the reason why Paul can be so confident, is that last phrase he tacks on. Timothy, my true child, in the faith. Timothy might be younger than Paul. Timothy might have to have the apostleship title upon him. But he was saved just like Paul. He's been faithful just like Paul. And he has, therefore, the, the inward, the inner workings of God who is at work in him, just like Paul. And so Paul is reminding the Ephesians and Timothy alike why he's confident in Timothy, why they can listen to Timothy, for he is a brother, he is a leader, he is the son of an apostle. And as believers today, we ought to take a step back and, and marvel at that concept. And it is right for us to, to be encouraged by the words of Paul and to think, wow, what what a kind thing for Paul to say to Timothy. Yet we must also take it a little further. For again, while we are not apostles, and while we're not even sons or daughters of apostles, we are priests, according to Peter. We are indwelt with the same spirit who brought about the resurrection of Christ. We too have the authoritative word of God at our fingertips, and we are indwelt with the spirit who allows us to understand it, to speak it. And we too, while not being called apostles, 
are ambassadors of the kingdom. And so lest we become so overwhelmed with a sense of inadequacy, the sense of, well, someone else can do that work. Someone else can share the faith. Someone else can raise my kids. Someone else can do this. Someone else can do that. No, if, if you are a child of God, you have all you need. And even if the world might ignore everything you say, might reject everything you accomplish, well, people like the Apostle Paul, a cloud of witnesses that come before us, cheer that work on. And so we are given time and time again reason to be confident in the work that God has called us to do. For God gives us that same spirit. And so Paul, speaking in the midst of this great confusion, not only speaks a word of authority, but he speaks this word of confidence. And at this point in time, it perhaps might have made sense for Paul to then dig into the doctrines that need to be unpacked, dig into the issues that need to be addressed, but Paul still has that final word of actual greeting. And it's in that final word that we see this word of encouragement, a word that it was no doubt so sweet and so important for Timothy to savor. For as encouraging as it must have been to be reminded of Paul's authority, as great as it is to hear that he has confidence in Timothy, well, let's face it, Timothy needed, needed more than just a pat on the back. Needed more than just a attaboy, go get him. He again needed one more word to remind him why everything was going to be okay. It's in that word of encouragement we see this final phrase, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Here in this word of encouragement, we find two words that are standard in Paul's writing. Words that, again, are so familiar that they're easy to jump past, those words being grace and peace. This is Paul's routine signature, both in greeting and conclusion. Regularly, routinely, Paul revisits these words, grace and peace. Grace and peace to the Romans. Grace and peace to the Corinthians. Grace and peace to the Ephesians. Grace and peace to the Philippians. Over and over and over, grace and peace. Yet despite how familiar these words are to us, we must appreciate how powerful they would have been in Paul's day. For even those words alone speak of far more compassion, far more love than your typical greeting. For Paul lived in a culture of cynicism, of pessimism, a, a culture caught up in magic and superstition. Paul wrote to Christians being persecuted in that culture, and yet time and time again, Paul writes with the utmost level of confidence. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. Everything is fine. Grace and peace. These words are beautiful and precious, and those two words alone really provide quite a foundation upon which we're able to understand so much about the Christian faith and the Christian calling. The first word amongst that familiar pair, grace, is constantly used by Paul. The word is used some 150 some odd times in the New Testament, a hundred of those times by Paul. It is used as a sort of summary, one word summary of God's gracious act of saving. And so you think perhaps most famously of, of a passage like Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace being that unmerited favor of God. That characteristic of God that characterizes our salvation, the means of our salvation, which is never what we do. 
For we are never saved based off of the potential God sees in us. We are never saved because God looks through the corridors of time and thinks, oh, they're going to bring a lot to the kingdom. We are rotting corpses headed to hell, and God, in love, by grace, opens up your eyes. You see the truth. You are regenerated. That's grace. It is upon that basis that Paul understood he was saved, upon that basis that he understood all believers are saved. It was upon that basis that Paul did everything Paul did. And so it is no surprise that since it defines so much of Paul, so much of his work, that he routinely would revisit this word as he wrote to believers who are experiencing both good times and bad times, grace, remember the grace of Christ. Grace is why you exist. Grace is why we keep going. And grace is why we have that second word in that familiar pair, peace. For peace is that objective reality we experience as a result of God's grace. By grace, we who were once at war with God are now brought into peace with God. We who were once enemies with God are now adopted as children of God. Jesus Christ himself promised this type of grace or this type of peace back in John chapter 14. In John 14, speaking of this peace, Jesus, as he speaks to his disciples, says this, John 14, 25, these things I've spoken to you while abiding with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring you remembrance, all that I said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, but I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be fearful. Jesus swore that he would leave his people with peace. A peace that we later learn in passages like Romans 5 that is won by Christ in his atoning death. A peace that was maintained, as we read in Philippians, maintained by the Spirit. A peace that regardless of, of how you feel today, Christian, your peace with God is guaranteed. For your peace does not rest in your feelings. It does not rest on how obedient you were this morning and how kind you were to your kid as you were trying to shove them out the door to get to church on time. Thank God for that. Your peace with God is an objective fact, won by Christ, maintained by Christ in the Spirit, and something that will carry us into all eternity. Again, it's foundational. Uh, again, it's something that, that Paul returns back to constantly. Because again, Paul understands how easy it is to forget these things. For believers in Paul's day did not live in a very peaceful world, did they? It was chaotic. They were hated. They were despised. They needed the daily reminder that, that as chaotic and warlike as their culture was, they had peace with God, and that's what would matter. And believer, you, you and me need that daily reminder today, for we live in a world of chaos. And goodness gracious, we're headed into yet another tumultuous political season in which countless people will do their best to ensure you that the end is near. Chaos reigns. And as believers, it's so easy to get caught up in that tumult of our society and to allow the fear of those around us to influence us, to make us feel as if the things have gone off the tracks, and yet the peace of God guarantees that regardless of our national uh, circumstances, regardless of what happens in your life, you are still at peace with God. And again, that's the only thing that matters. And so Paul reminds Timothy, reminds the Ephesians, and reminds us grace and peace. Remember, you have grace and peace. 
But in addition to that grace and peace, Paul offers that middle word, a unique addition to Timothy. For as he speaks to Timothy, he does not simply say grace and peace to you, Timothy, but grace, mercy, and peace, Timothy. Mercy, this precious addition from the apostle who understood full well the challenges that Timothy faced. Mercy, which is similar to grace, similar to compassion, but, but it speaks, again, to this objective reality that the believer experiences. It, too, defined the covenantal relationship between God and his people. It was a defining characteristic of God as revealed in passages like Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. Describing this merciful, compassionate God, we read these words in Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed in front of him, that is Moses, and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and grandchildren of the third and fourth generation. As we think of the God of the Old Testament, oftentimes our focus goes to that last half of the verse of God punishing sin. But that is not where God begins in his revelation of himself. God begins by speaking of his mercy, of his compassion, specifically the mercy and compassion to forgive us our sins, not just in the present moment, but ongoing. You see, that's the beauty of God's mercy. It speaks both of the historical reality of our forgiveness, but also elicits this understanding of how God will continue to interact with his people from now on into all eternity. In other words, since God was merciful to you then, he will continue to be merciful to you, continue to be kind and compassionate and gracious and forgiving, regardless of what circumstances might bring. This word then speaks of both the past objective reality and ongoing provision of a God who sees our struggle a God who knows our inadequacy, a God who knows your pain, who knows your frustration, but a God who cares, and a God who forgives, and a God who guides, because it's God who is merciful. And yet again, as as you look at the environment in which Paul wrote, you understood how important this concept would have been to Timothy. For Timothy was in an impossibly difficult situation. A painful situation in which his reputation was clearly not viewed as all that impressive. A situation in which his authority was clearly questioned. A situation in which anyone would feel inadequate. Yet Paul tells Timothy, none of that matters. Because there is grace, there is mercy, there is peace, and it all comes from the same source. God the Father, Christ Jesus. The same Christ who struck Paul blind in the conversion. The same Christ who spoke through Lois, mother and grandmother to Timothy. The same God who converted Saul, who converted Timothy. The same God who has called us from the kingdom of darkness to light. That same God is with us. And thus we can maintain confidence. Thus regardless of how discouraging the moment might be, we find encouragement. And regardless of how crazy God's plan might seem at times, the idea that God calls the church to proclaim his glories, while we might not fully understand it, we can confidently move forward and fulfill that calling, knowing that the same God 
who did all of these things is the same God who will continue to work through us. The same God whose glory will be revealed for all eternity, for all ages. As Paul writes these words of greetings to Timothy then, he writes far more than just, hello, Timothy. He writes a sermon, a reminder of the foundation of the faith. And it is upon that foundation that Paul is able to then build up the remaining portion of his letter, that letter which we'll continue to study in the months to come. As we close this morning, though, there's so much to be applied out of this text. For you who are here who have not yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I pray you understand that the same Christ Jesus who was able to save Saul, the great persecutor of the church, the same Christ who showed him compassion and called him a child, calls you today, unbeliever. Regardless of what you've done, of the failures that you are guilty of, of the sins you have committed, there is grace for you. You simply have to believe. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent of your sins, and you will be adopted today. If you have any questions, please seek me out in the lobby. Please do not let this moment pass by. Please believe now. For my brothers and sisters in Christ, the opening words of Paul to Timothy are an essential reminder for us all today to be calm. Calm down, believer. The world looked chaotic in Timothy's day. Yet as Paul wrote to him, it's fine. God's still at work. The world looks chaotic to us today so oftentimes, but it's fine. God's still God. He's still sovereign. He's still creator and Lord of everything. So let's take a step back and, and find peace in that. But in order to do that, let us be careful to always daily return to our source of authority. Not your favorite news site, not your favorite speaker, but God's word. Know that, study that, quote that, and rest in that. And as you do so, as you calm down by the spirit, as you return to our authority, let us then return daily to our ongoing source of grace, mercy, and peace. Let us daily call out to Christ, thanking him for his sacrifice, and remembering that just as he was able to win us to his kingdom, he is able to continue to perfect and execute his will today in our lives. And let us then respond in obedience to him. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for today. We thank you for these words of Paul to Timothy. God, it is so easy to overlook these words of greeting and assume there's just not that much there. But God, in the midst of the incredibly weighty circumstances Timothy was facing, we thank you for the beautiful and weighty words of Paul. And we thank you for the fact that they're just as relevant, just as applicable today as they were to Timothy. God, we confess we are by our own selves entirely inadequate to fulfill the calling you've given us. We are not smart enough. We are not strong enough. We are not skilled enough. We are not important enough. But God, you've called us. And you call us for the purpose of showing off your glory, that you are able to work through vessels that are inadequate, that are broken, that are pathetic in the eyes of the world. And yet you use us to proclaim your beauty and your glory, God. Might we take comfort in that? Again, God, for those here who find themselves in times of chaos, in times of discomfort, in times of pain, God, I pray they might find comfort and mercy and peace in these words. 
Might we daily pursue you, daily ignore the alarms of the world around us, and daily rest knowing that our confidence is not found in how impressive we are, but they're found in the unchanging beauty and glory of you, of your son, of the gospel we proclaim. We praise you, God, and we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.